Just a heads up as we begin, we're going to start in Joshua chapter 23. Um, at, the, at the very end of his life, after taking over leadership of uh, the people of Israel from Moses, um, after leading the people into the promised land, and, and after defeating many, but not all, of Israel's enemies... Joshua gave a charge to the leaders of God's chosen people. It is Joshua chapter 23. So I want to read this. Joshua 23, beginning in verse 1. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years... Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea to the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you and, or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you this day. One man of you puts a puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages uh, with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you. And whip your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Now I'm about to go to the the way of uh, all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning uh, you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you, and go down and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Well, this is an example of the great battle the people of God face. 
We're often called, uh, in fact, there's a saying, we are often called to be in the world, but not of it, which is not exactly what the scripture teaches. Rather, that statement, to be in the world and not of it, is kind of a, it's an oversimplification of Jesus' prayer for his own in, in John 17, verses 16, 17, and 18, which says this, They are not of this world, Jesus prays for us, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So really, we should say that we are not of this world, but we are sent ones into the world. But the dichotomy stands. As Christians, we are not of this world. Well, that brings us back to Joshua, specifically to a couple of lines in that charge that he gave to the people of Israel, to the elders and heads, to the judges and the officers of the people of Israel. So listen again to Joshua 23, verses 11, 12, and 13. He said this, he said, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and Make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off of this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So did you hear that? He's telling them that they can either love the Lord their God Or essentially, they can love the world. They can't have both. They could either love the Lord and obey His commands and cling to His promises and and trust in His faithfulness and His loving kindness, or they can turn back and cling to the nations that already stand condemned and, he says, make marriages and associate with them. And as God's people living in 21st century America... As New Testament, New Covenant Christians, this is still true for us. We can either love the Lord and the Christ that He sent, or we can love the world, but we can't have both. And if we abide in Christ, if we are chosen by God to go and bear fruit in His name, then we will obey His commandment to love one another just as He first loved us. But this is the great contest that we find ourselves in. The great battle. Joshua will go on to challenge the people and to make a stand by saying, really it's in verse uh, chapter 24 of Joshua, he says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, the enemies may go by different names today. In fact, Jesus just uses the term, the world. And we have stood really right in the middle. We've stood at the crossroads and we have considered the cost of following Christ. We've stood at a place where it is love versus hatred. In reality, this is where we live right now. Right in the middle of the verses, love Versus hate. Last week we looked at the the love of Christ for us and our response to Him in the first 
Um, that last section of John chapter 15, really verses 12 through 17. And we are called there to love one another. But this week we see really just the opposite of that. We see the hatred of the world. So I'm going to read this. Um, I'm going to read last week's passage and this week's passage and so that you can see the, the verses, the love versus hatred. So John 15, beginning in verse 12, I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, verse 27. It says this, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's stop and pray one more time right here. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. I pray that you would feed us from your word, that we might glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This entire, um, often called the upper room discourse, or even the farewell discourse, this entire uh, discourse, this monologue, mostly, this sayings of what Jesus is saying here, is meant to be an encouragement. It's meant to be a comfort to his disciples. Remember what they've witnessed just in the past few weeks. If you go back to John chapter 11, they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. It wasn't all that long after that, as they approached Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, that they witnessed the crowds take branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And then they witnessed this scene from John chapter 12, verses 27 to 32, as Jesus says this, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it, 
said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Well, to those who expected the Messiah to ascend to the throne of King David, those words must have sounded like great news. But then, inexplicably, this anointed one, the Christ, the son of David, washed their feet. And he proclaimed this, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then a little bit later, he turns to Peter and he says, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. But right after that, in fact, it's the very next verse, John 14, 1, he, he begins to, to shift the focus of the discussion from the disciples and their failures to himself. And he does so by calling them to put their trust, their faith, their belief in God and in his Messiah, in Jesus himself. And it is only with your faith firmly in God, firmly in Christ, that we can rest, that we can let not your hearts be troubled. We can rest knowing that he has sent another helper, as he has promised, a a paraclete to be with us forever. It's kind of a summary of the last several chapters, but this is not where Jesus stops. Not only has he promised this another helper, not only has he called us to a life of love and obedience, but he's also called us to abide in him. And he has called us to love one another as I have loved you. And how has he loved us? He laid down his life for us. But grace upon grace, He also calls us His friends. He has revealed the Father's plans by giving us His Word, and He has chosen us and appointed us to the task of bearing fruit in His name. But now we come to the point where Jesus needs to also remind His disciples of the the hard truth that, that while we abide in the love of the Father, things are not always going to be easy for the followers of the way, for Christians, for disciples of Jesus Christ. See, while love marks the life of the believer, loved by God, loved by Jesus, love for one another, while love marks the life of the believer, hatred is going to surround us. Notice how often in the past couple of chapters... Jesus has affirmed his love for his own. Going all the way back, for example, to his weeping over the death of Lazarus. But now he's going to contrast the love of God with the hatred of the world. This is the verses. He begins by going right to the root of the hatred. The root of the hatred. Look at verses 18 to 21. Let me read this again. He says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep, uh, also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. One of the reasons that we need to abide in Christ is because, uh, because according to Jesus, the world hates you. Let me, let me rephrase that. According to Jesus, the world hates you. This needs to be a factor as we consider the cost of discipleship. The world's going to hate you. For the most part, um, Christians in, in our nation have not faced persecution. Sure, there have been some families um, where when... Uh, someone converts to Christ, they maybe would experience a real and abiding hatred toward them for claiming the name of Christ. But by and large, persecution in our country has been virtually non-existent. But in the past decade, we have seen some increasing opposition to Christians, increasing opposition to churches. Most recently, even in this um, pandemic, We've seen in some areas, um, as we have grappled with this stay-at-home order, some local authorities around the country have singled out churches, but this shouldn't surprise us. It's going to continue, and it's going to get worse. That doesn't mean we shouldn't fight or argue for our rights as appropriate. But Jesus' words here should be heeded. The world hates you. We would be wise to add to this what Paul said to Timothy in in 2 Timothy 3.12 when he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he wrote that from a jail cell, probably near the very end of his life. But here Jesus goes to straight to the root of this. It really is this first verse, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So as we pick this apart, let me give you five brief observations. Number one is that word, know. Know that the world has hated Christ long before it hated us. In fact, in this sentence, know that it has hated me before it hated you, in that sentence, me is stressed. Me is emphasized. Jesus says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. This is about this cosmic battle of good versus evil. This is about the promise that God made to the serpent in the garden when he said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the verses. Love versus hate. Good versus evil. Jesus versus the world. No, he says. There is a certainty in this. We can know for certain that we're the objects of the world's hatred because Christ is the object of the world's hatred and we are his. We are, in, we are abiding in Christ. So the second observation is this. This is not new. Again, this battle goes all the way back to the garden. 
But it didn't end there in the garden with that promise. Think of, for example, the glimpse of this that we see in the book of Job. Let me read from the first chapter, Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. It says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. We know how the rest of this story plays out. Job was living right there in the, in the verses. He was loved by God and hated by Satan. This is Ephesians chapter 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is not new, and this is why we've been given the armor of God there in Ephesians 6. This is why we can rest easy knowing that Christ has chosen us, as he says here, out of this world, he says in verse 19. Well, the third observation is this. The hatred of the world is primarily directed at Jesus and only secondarily directed at us. In other words, the world doesn't hate you because of you. It hates you because of Him. Because if you are His, if you are bold, if you are being conformed to His image, then you will potentially be just simply a casualty for the world. You will be carnage along the way in the world's effort to destroy and discredit Christ. John will explain this by explaining what happened between Cain and Abel, for example. Listen to what he says about that event. It's 1 John chapter 3. Verses 11, 12, and 13, he says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, John says. Cain killed Abel because he hated God. The world hates us because it also hates God and the Son whom He sent. The fourth observation is this. The world hates you because Jesus saved you out of the world. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates us because God has richly blessed us. The world hates us because God has poured out His grace upon us. Grace upon grace. 
The world hates us because God has wrapped His robes of righteousness around us. The Apostle Peter picks up on this idea. And he runs with it in his first letter. Just listen to two passages from 1 Peter. The first one is chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It just says this. Listen to what he says about the church, about Christians, about his people, God's people. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen to how he opened his letter. So 1 Peter chapter 1, listen to what he says in verses, beginning in verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though now you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though now you do not see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The world hates us because God has richly blessed us. Grace upon grace. And then the fifth observation here is this. We can be assured that the world's mistreatment of Christ will continue against his disciples. The church really is the body of Christ, and physically, we will participate in his sufferings. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. This treatment is entirely rooted in the world's relationship with Christ himself. Some will respond to him with hatred and persecution. In fact, many will. Some, even those who are former persecutors, like Paul himself will eventually respond in obedience. That's what the end of verse 20 means here in John 15, when he said, If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But ultimately, everyone will respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philippians tells us that every knee will bow, whether on earth or under the earth. Every knee. Ultimately, everyone will respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus shifts his focus from the root of hatred to the guilt of hatred. This ties back in, the guilt of hatred. Pick it up in verse 22. He says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So as he turns to guilt now, as he pivots back from the disciples, back to his own work, what he does here, he, he gives two statements that really require our attention. They're both in verse 22, and then he restates them a little bit differently in verse um, 24. We can see them really throughout this whole section. The first statement is this. He says, if, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin. He says similarly in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, clearly, this does not mean that sin was not an issue until Christ came onto the scene. It can't mean that. The rest of Scripture tells us that sin is rampant in the world and even amongst God's people. What it does mean is that Christ's teaching, so for example, his Sermon on the Mount, his teaching and and his life of perfect obedience reveal their true condition. So, in his teaching, for example, he tells them that the law says not to kill. But then he explains if you hate someone, you're breaking the law. You're wishing that they were dead. He says, do not commit adultery. And he says, if you lust after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery in your mind and in your heart. Jesus was perfectly obedient. Before Christ, the response of the rich young ruler was the norm. Do you remember his story? He asked Jesus one question, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And this was his response. He said to him, Teacher, All these I have kept from my youth. But Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching reveal the depths of sin. It cuts straight to the heart. The second statement that we need to understand is the second part of verse 22. He says, but now they have no excuse for their sin. This really is kind of synonymous with the first statement. Jesus takes away all of our excuses. This is what he did to Nicodemus back in chapter 3. He says this, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." Jesus is the light shining in the darkness. He exposes the darkness. And in this metaphor, the darkness can respond in one of two ways. Either love the light of the world or hate the light of the world. 
Jesus' incarnation, when Jesus came in the flesh, the advent of Christ inaugurated really the judgment of the world, both Jew and Gentile. And as this gospel has been making clear, Jesus is both the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney. Either you trust in him or you don't trust in him. Either you face the wrath of God or you live and thrive under his mercy and grace. These are the only two responses. As he says in verses 23 and 24, rejection of God's people really is a rejection of God's Son. And a rejection of God's Son is a rejection of God Himself. These words were especially poignant to those of Jewish descent, to those people surrounding Jesus and His disciples, those people that they have been ministering to, that they have seen continue to reject Jesus by and large. But this is no less poignant for us. It has been popular recently to say, I love Jesus, but not the church. But Jesus takes that away from us here. The church is just simply the ones who are called out by God, assembled together to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, he says here in verse 24 that a rejection of Christ is a rejection, really, of his imputed righteousness. It's a rejection of his sacrifice. It's a rejection of his atonement for sin. And then he says in verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Just as the Bible says, he said, they're going to reject. He's quoting from a couple of different psalms there. But I want you to see the the depth of their rejection. Notice that in verse 25, he uses the phrase, their law. He says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. Their law. Do you see what he's doing? Jesus is moving the unbelieving Jews into the category of the world. That's their law. That's... That's the old law. We are now under the law of Christ. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And not only that, but he is also sending another helper. See, he doesn't end this thought here. He continues in verse 26, and he uses the word, but... We will live as Christians. We will live surrounded by the hatred of the world. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send, you, uh, send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the witness of the paraclete, the witness of the, the advocate, the, the Helper. He's saying these things as an encouragement to his disciples. They're about to face the hatred of the world. In the next 12 hours, these disciples are going to see hatred manifest. They're going to see it taken out on him. The shepherd is going to be struck 
and the sheep are going to scatter. This is the hatred that they're also going to face. History tells us that um, most likely all except for John died in being persecuted, and John suffered plenty. They're going to face the hatred of the world. He is preparing them for this. But remember the promise that he says back in chapter 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He has not left us as orphans. He has given us the spirit of truth who testifies to the way, the truth, and the life. And so we are not of this world In fact, we will be hated by the world. But we have also been sent into the world to bear witness about the truth. And so while this life is a constant struggle in the verses, the the love versus hate, the love of God, the love of His people versus the hatred of the world, we need to embrace that conflict. We need to remember that it's one or the other. Either we love the world or we love Christ. Choose this day whom you will serve, as Joshua says. And sent us into the world with the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, a message of hope, a message that removes us from the darkness and brings us into his marvelous light, the light of the world. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to be of good courage. That we might be strong and courageous. That we might stand for the truth. The truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. That that you, Father, sent your Son... die for sinners. That in Christ the love of God was made manifest. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, will not overcome, cannot overcome. Father, we thank you. Remind us of your love today. We pray these things in Jesus' name.